Well, good morning, and thank you to our praise team for leading us in worship today. I think it's such a vital, vital aspect of what we do when we come here at Grace Life Church to come together corporately and sing praises of worship to the one true living God. And so, so grateful for all the work that our praise team puts into that, and uh, so grateful that uh, our hearts can be in tune with where they need to be. And so we want to take our Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 10. Isn't it fun to watch the army of kids walk out? (laughs) It it amazes me how many children we have in the church, and we're so grateful for all of that. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 10. We finished up John chapter 9 uh, last week, and we're going to be in John chapter 10 uh, this week, next week, and the following week. And uh, I was stopped earlier Uh, out in the lobby, and a few people actually said to me that John chapter 10 is one of their favorite passages in all the Bible. Do you have a favorite passage of Scripture? Uh, There are certain Scriptures that seem to resonate with us in a little bit of a different way than others do, but we know and we believe that the Bible is wholly inspired by God. In fact, we believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration, which is that we believe that all of the Bible is inspired and it's all equally inspired. And so all of the genealogies that we see back in the Old Testament are just as inspired as these words that we're going to look at here today in John chapter 10. Well, as we've seen throughout our study of the Gospel of John, sometimes there are uh, time breaks between the chapters, some really even sizable time breaks, like days and weeks or even months. But just as we move our way into this today, we need to know there's no time break here. There's no time break between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Chapter 9 ends with Jesus surrounded by this formerly blind man that he had healed, his disciples, the Pharisees, and others, and he keeps on sharing with all who will listen. But as we'll see here, he does switch gears as it relates to the subject matter, but this is still the same dialogue. So as we begin to look at this today, chapter 10 is just a continuation of of chapter 9. As we've said throughout our study, there are seven profound and distinct I am statements in the Gospel of John. And so seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself as the great I am. He makes an I am declaration that helps to identify who he is, where he is from, and why he is here. Last week, I told a little bit about Kathy and I moving away from pastoring at the large church in Illinois that we were a part of for some 20 years, and then going over to pastor a tiny little church that was dying on the vine. Just 17 people when we got there. And then I mentioned the account of a young family who in the early weeks of our being there came to church, and we all got excited, and there were really these three questions on our mind. Who are you? Where are you from? And why are you here And after learning that that family was just in town for the weekend, it was rather disappointing at the time. But just to finish up that story, against all odds, that little dying church became a vibrant church for the Lord's glory, because nothing is too difficult for Him. We changed the name of the church. I rewrote the doctrinal statement in the constitution of the church to bring it more in line with Scripture. We worked really hard, and then we watched God work. 
In less than three years, that little church grew from 17 people to around 120 people. And by His grace, we had a tremendous impact on the surrounding communities. We trained elders and deacons and developed a huge vacation Bible school program with somewhere between 80 and 100 kids who would attend each year. We remodeled the inside of the building and the outside of the building, and God's handiwork was was fully on display. I tell you that because sometimes I think we forget how awesome God is. We need to be constantly reminded that he can do well beyond what we could ever ask or think. None of us in our wildest dreams would have thought that God would have done that in that church, and yet he did. And so at the, at the backdrop and at the heart of when we come to the word of God, we must realize that God is indeed awesome. And we will see that here through the life of Christ as we move through this gospel. This is evidenced by the circumstances that brought about these seven I am statements by Jesus as he identifies himself as God and essentially tells all who will listen, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, and this is why I'm here. Now here's the significance of him using this declaration of I am. In the Old Testament, God revealed his name to Moses, and in Exodus 3.14, he said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. And so in Judaism, since I am is unquestionably understood as a name for God, whenever Jesus made an I am statement, they all knew that he was identifying himself as God, holy God. And of course, that therein lied the problem. This was the reason for their anger and their vitriol directed at Jesus. Throughout our exposition of this gospel, we've already considered a couple of these I am statements by Jesus. And the first was found in John 6.35, and then repeated in verse 41, 48, and 51. And it is that Jesus proclaims himself to be the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And you remember that Jesus made this declaration after he miraculously fed more than 5,000 people in the wilderness. And he contrasts what he had done, what Moses had done in distributing physical bread in the form of manna to the Israelites with why he came to the earth, which was to provide the spiritual bread of eternal life to all who would believe in him. John 6, verses 49 and 50 says, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. The second I am statement from Jesus was when he said in John uh, chapter 8 and verse 12, and then he repeated again in John chapter 9 and verse 5, when he said, I am the light of the world. Again, the, the imagery is profound. He says, I am the light of the world right before he heals this blind man. So Jesus uh, not only says he's the light, but his miracle proved that he was the light. Now, in our passage for this morning, as we look at John chapter 10, we're going to find the third I am statement when he says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Uh, We find it repeated here twice, first in John 10 and verse 7, and then again in verse 9. 
And as we'll see, this I am statement is uh, not unlike the others, and it stresses that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven by any other means than Christ himself. Jesus' words in this passage are couched in the imagery of a sheepfold. In other words, he is the only way. He's the one and only way to enter into the fold. And so let me read the passage for you, just 10 verses today, and then we're going to take a look at it, and uh, I think it'll be a blessing to you. Look at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And so Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So as we break this down today, there are really two primary purposes of a door as I see it. So today we want to take a closer look at the imagery that Jesus is using here as he identifies himself as the door of the sheep. And the first purpose is that a door is used for access. A door is used for access. Again, verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. And of course, the reason why they don't understand what he's saying is because they're spiritually appraised. These Pharisees, these unbelievers, are spiritually blind. The imagery in the Gospel of John is unparalleled. We have all of this beautiful imagery as we try to understand who Jesus Christ is and why he came to the earth and who he is. He is the promised one, the promised Messiah, the sinless Son of God, the Son of Man, God in the flesh. So first, we want to consider the first purpose of a door, and it's that a door is used for access. Sheep herding has always been a big industry in that part of the world because of the valuable wool that sheep produce. Of course, their milk is used for various cheeses, and then at some point, they could be butchered for their meat. 
And even to this day, sheep herding is very active. When we were in Israel back in 2018, we're driving through the countryside, we would see various shepherds walking their flock of sheep. And so uh, here's a picture of me with a local shepherd. Notice how weathered his skin is. Uh, He was gracious enough, didn't speak a word of English, but he was gracious enough to to take a picture here. And I I thought it'd be a good visual at some point down the road. Uh, Shepherds everywhere in the countryside. As we were traveling throughout the, the countryside, we would see these shepherds. And what's interesting here, and we'll get to this in a moment, but the shepherds would lead from the front. In other industrialized countries or other countries rather than in the Middle East, the shepherds would be in the back, making sure that the sheep are constantly going the way that they should. But in, in, in Israel and in other countries like it, the shepherd would lead from the front. And so we saw this with our very own eyes, uh, and it was very interesting. Well, as we begin to dive in here this morning, let, let, me, let me begin by, by asking you a, a little trivia question, Okay. Who was the first shepherd mentioned in the Bible? Anybody? Who's the first shepherd mentioned in the Bible? Abel, right? Were you thinking Abel? Genesis 4.2 says, Later she, meaning Eve, gave birth to his brother Abel, and now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. It's interesting How many people in the Bible were shepherds? Other notable shepherds in the Bible are Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, and Zipporah. So there were women shepherdesses as well. Zipporah and her sisters were shepherds. Zipporah eventually became the wife of Moses. Then there's Laban. There's Jacob's 12 sons, including Joseph. There's Moses, there's David, there's Doeg, there's Amos, the shepherds who came to honor Jesus. And of course, later in this chapter, Jesus is going to be identified as the good shepherd. A shepherd was given responsibility to care for the sheep, but was not necessarily the owner of the sheep. And so here's kind of how all of that worked. The shepherds would be responsible for caring for the sheep during the day, but at night, they would take the sheep to a fold. It was a kind of a communal pen or a cordoned off area. This is where the sheep would stay overnight. But before each sheep would enter the fold, they would be identified and inspected to make sure they were healthy. So once all the sheep were in the fold, there would be a doorkeeper who sort of served as an undershepherd. And the doorkeeper would watch over the sheep throughout the night and would often stretch themselves across the door to the fold so as to keep the sheep in and those who might want to steal or harm them out. So the only people who had access to the fold were the shepherds. So anyone who had nefarious purposes in mind, like a thief or a robber, would have to try to get into the fold some other way because they weren't getting in through the door. Only the shepherds were allowed in to regather the sheep the following day. And so because these were communal folds, there were a lot of sheep and there were a lot of shepherds. 
And so how would the shepherds know which sheep are theirs, and how would the sheep know who was their shepherd? Well, verse 4 says, the sheep hear the voice of their shepherd, and they follow him. So as I said earlier, in the Middle East, in Israel, the shepherd would lead from the front with his voice. The shepherd even, it says here, knows the names of the sheep. That's how intimate the shepherd-sheep relationship was. And of course, there's such beautiful imagery as we think of Jesus, who's the good shepherd, who knows his sheep intimately. But that's for next week. Notice here that the sheep will not follow a stranger. They know who their shepherd is. They'll actually flee from a stranger. So if another shepherd calls out a sheep that's not his, the sheep's not going to go with them because they don't know the voice of strangers. And so all this sheep-shepherd imagery that Jesus uses here is a rebuke to the Pharisees who were the self-appointed false shepherds of Israel. They're standing right in front of him. Jesus is calling them out, and they don't even know it. They're spiritually blind. Jesus is the good shepherd, and these religious leaders, like the Pharisees, who are leading people the wrong way, are illustrated here in the text as thieves and robbers. There's only one legitimate way into the sheepfold. And it's through the door, through Jesus. He is the only one who can give access to God's sheepfold. But verse 6 tells us that they didn't understand the metaphor. They didn't understand. Jesus is talking to them. He's using imagery that those who had their eyes spiritually opened would understand, but they don't understand it. And the reason was because they are spiritually blind. So first, the door is used for access. Second, a door is used for protection. Look at verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and destroy and to kill. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so, in the simplest form, a door is used to gain access in and to keep others out, right? So to keep The right guy's in, and the wrong guy's out. That's the purpose, primary purposes of a door. Years ago, when our girls were still in the home, Kathy and I were away at lunch, and I got a phone call, and it was our daughter Amanda who was frantically crying and saying, Dad, Dad, there's someone in our house. There's someone in our house. Can you imagine receiving a phone call like this? I said, what are you talking about? She said, Dad, there's someone in the house. She told me she grabbed Allison, she ran out of the house, went to the neighbors. So as I received this phone call as a father, (laughs) I am beyond 
myself at this point. I run out of the place we were eating. I speed over to the home, which wasn't very far away. By the time that I get there, the police were there. They had this guy handcuffed lying face down on the dining room floor. Can you imagine this? Going in, there's police everywhere. Going into your own home, and there is someone who has violated your home, and they're laying face down, handcuffed on your dining room floor with your dining room table scooted up against the wall. My girls, as I said, were at the neighbors across the street. And the reason why the neighbors were such on top of this was because the guy tried to get into their house first, but they have two Doberman pinchers. So we got nothing. So, uh, so they had called the police at that time. And so the timing of this was perfect. So when I get there, the police are there. This guy's laying face down on the dining room floor. The girls are at the neighbors. They're shaking up. So I'm not going to lie. When I was brought into the dining room, I encountered this guy. It crossed my mind to accidentally let him experience what a size 13 to the head would feel like. (laughs) But I didn't. I thought, you know, you can mess with me, but don't mess with my girls. So after he was hauled off to jail, the girls calmed down. They told me what happened. It's a fascinating story. You can ask them sometimes if you're interested in the details. But basically, the gist of the story is he walked right in the front door of our house. Because it wasn't locked and it was unattended. So the idea here is the only way to enter into God's fold, his sheepfold, is to go through the door. And Jesus is the door. And he locks it behind him for protection. Doors are a good thing because they allow access to those who are supposed to be there and they keep out those who do not belong. Now remember, Jesus will say in John 14 and verse 6 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Why? Because he's the door of the sheep. He's the door that one must enter to get into the fold of God. No one, no, no, no one can enter any other way. He's the only entry point for salvation. He alone controls who enters. Notice here that Jesus warns against the thieves, which means that those who want to steal away the sheep so they'll follow them and not their shepherd, Jesus warns about these kinds of people, the thieves and the robbers, he says here. Some of these evildoers even want to kill and destroy the sheep. But Jesus says, all who enter through him, the door, they will be saved from sin and hell. All who enter through Jesus, the door of the sheep, will experience God's love and his grace and his mercy. They will receive forgiveness of sin and salvation and will be forever protected from harm. So you wonder about these evildoers, these evil men, these thieves and these robbers who want to harm the sheep. So as I'm working my way through this this week, I thought, you know, really, 
It's pretty straightforward what Jesus is saying. We understand it because our eyes have been opened by the Lord and we see spiritual truth. We understand it. And it's applicable to us because we know that the only way to enter into God's sheepfold is through Jesus, the door. So we know that. We understand that. They didn't get it. They're hearing the same thing. They don't understand it. But as it relates to those who want to harm the sheep, if you're taking notes this morning, first, there is the concern. The concern. According to Deuteronomy 18 and verse 20, God describes a false prophet as one who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods. In Jeremiah verse, chapter 14, verse 14, God says, these evildoers prophesy lies, offering false visions, divinations, idolatries, and the delusions of their own mind. Since the beginning of time, there have been thieves and robbers. Since the beginning of time, there have been false prophets, false teachers. And with that in mind, Jesus says in his great sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, grasping the imagery, right? So they're dressed up as sheep. They want you to think they're a sheep, but inwardly. Jesus says, they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So, it's no secret. I'm pretty much an open book. And you all know that my favorite place to shop, Sunset Outlet, I'm not in any way, I don't receive any remuneration from them for my uh, advertisements. Just there this past week, twice. <laughs> Two favorite places to go, Sunset Outlet and Roots Farmer's Market. So I love to go to Roots. We get our fruits and vegetables there for about a third of the cost that you can buy them in the grocery store. It's just kind of fun to walk around and see what's there and, and to get the different kind of fruits and vegetables. Well, they're easily identifiable. So if you've ever been out there, they're, the, the same vendors are in the same spots. And so I buy the same things from the same vendors that are in the same spots. And so I go up and down the tables, and I identify what it is that I want. And I can identify them because I can see it. Uh, Kathy likes to eat bananas, so I always get her bananas. But if I get green peppers, um, uh, I'm on a Brussels sprout kick right now, and so I get those. I'm trying to eat more fruit and vegetables and lean meat and things like that, so... So I came home with about seven or eight bags of fruits and vegetables. But it was real easy for me because I could identify them. An apple's an apple, an orange is an orange, a banana's a banana, and so on and so forth. When, when, when Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit, you'll be able to see and identify who these false prophets, these ravenous wolves are. Eventually, 
they will show themselves for who they are. Eventually, they will show themselves because a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by the fruit. So sometimes there could be a vendor there at Roots Farmer's Market that has something that looks kind of like what you're looking for, but it's not really the real thing. And so I'll walk right past that guy and I'll go over and make sure I'm getting the right thing. I'm getting the right fruit or the right vegetables. Jesus is full of imagery, if you haven't noticed. Whenever he speaks, he uses this this imagery, metaphors, similes, figures of speech. Matthew 24, 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. It's a thing. Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. Satan, who is the ruler of this world, the god of this world, small g. He wants to do anything and everything he possibly can to people like us. He wants to harm us. He doesn't want to see anything good happen to us. And it's all because he hates God. Satan is real. He has false Christ, false prophets. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, and this breaks my heart, but, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. I have seen it with my own eyes. People that once seemed to have an affinity for Christ, somewhat of regular attenders in the church, turn. They turn. No longer do they want sound doctrine. No longer do they want to be taught the the truths of God's Word. No longer do they want to be obedient to the truths of God's Word. Something has happened. And what has happened They were never a true believer in Christ from the first. They have shown themselves for what they are. They weren't good fruit. They were bad fruit. And Paul warns Timothy that this is going to happen. As time progresses, as the church progresses, we're going to see this more and more and more and more. You'll be able to identify these people because they turn on Christ. They turn away from the church. They go and they follow other shepherds who are going to lead them astray. And it should break our heart. I have followed up with people that I have seen this happen in their lives, and I've followed up with them, and I've said, what are you doing? You know this isn't right. You know this is wrong. I've even known of people who have gotten into some sort of a weird quasi-cult thing. And as I say to them, Do you not see this? No, they don't. Because they too are spiritually blind. 
Second Peter 2, 1, 1 through 3 says, But false prophets also appeared among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their indecent behavior, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We do not want to be flamingo Christians. Is it the flamingo that puts their head in the sand? Who puts their head in the sand? Who does? Okay, you got a long neck. Anything with a long neck, don't trust people with long necks. Flamingo stands on one leg, and they're pink. Uh, well, I don't need to re- keep reiterating the fact that there's concern, right? This is a thing. It's a thing, and I want to talk more about this in a moment, but so, so there, there's a concern, there's the concern, and rightly so, but second, there's the comfort, the comfort. In the Old Testament, God, who was very protective of his own, gave out his law, and in his law, he said, false teaching is so serious, so egregious, that false teachers and false prophets should be put to death. That's how serious God is about those who propagate error. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken falsely against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to drive you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall eliminate the evil from among you. So in the Old Testament, that was God's plan to eliminate false teaching, false prophets. That his law would be followed and those false prophets would be put to death. But as New Testament Christians, we're no longer subject to the ceremonial law or the the civil law of Moses since Jesus came to fulfill the law, right? So we're now only subject to the moral laws of God which have been repeated in the New Testament. So what about now? During the New Testament economy, what is God's plan to protect his people from the wolves, from the false teachers and the evildoers? Are you thinking? And the answer is the church and its God-ordained elders. This is one of the reasons why We put so much emphasis on the local church because God does. Hebrews 13 and verse 17 reminds church members that they are to be in subjection to the elders of their local church, and those elders will one day give an account to the Lord for their watch care over the flock entrusted to them. And so elders are, in a sense, under shepherds of the chief shepherd, who is Jesus. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to local church elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. 
be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. So you see this repeated imagery, right? The shepherd, the sheep, the sheepfold, the door, all this stuff is all within the same camp here. So he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's changed the imagery a little bit. He's talking now about elders being shepherds over the flock. Those are the Christians. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he, Christ, purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, after Paul leaves, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So God has given elders, shepherds within our local church to help to protect us and equip us. We're going to teach a class on what we believe here after we finish our Christian Worldview Sunday School class, which is meeting in here. And you're all welcome to attend that. It's been very, very good. It's been very, very good to look at what's going on in the world through the lens of Scripture from a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview, a biblical perspective. It's been very, very good. And so we're going to finish that out here, coming along here in about four or five more weeks. And then we're going to break up into new classes. And we'll have three electives. And one of them is going to be on what we believe. What we believe, what we practice, what we believe here at Grace Life Church. It's an equipping class. It's an informative, equipping class for us to be able to say, this is what we believe God's Word has to say about all these things. And we try not to make it dull and boring. Uh, It's interactive. It's a chance for us to get to know one another better. It's It's a chance for you, whomever would attend, to ask questions about various things, because we all have questions. And so that's a great forum for us to be able to have this discussion about the church, the importance of the church, what we believe God's Word has to say about all these different doctrines and all these different things. Well, at the beginning of the class, I begin the class by talking about the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? And I will give three E's for that, to exalt the Savior to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. So that's a good way for us to, 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 to remember what is the purpose of the church. To, to, to worship the one true living God, to exalt Jesus Christ. And I believe we did that today. Uh, I believe not only did we do it in song, but we're doing it as we interact with one another within the body of Christ. We're exalting God. We're here to learn about him, which then leads to the second E, which is to edify the church, to edify. That means to build one another up in the faith. And this is the primary purpose of biblical preaching, which is to build us up in the faith so that we know the Bible, we understand the Bible, we understand the charges in the Bible, the commands in the Bible, what they mean and what they mean to us and how we're to put them into practice. And the church should be all about the gospel of Christ. So the third E is evangelism. 
So part of our purpose in edifying the church, building the church up, is to warn the church about thieves and robbers. These are the characteristics of a thief and a robber. And if you don't lock your door, they might walk right into your door, right into your house. So I can tell you, if you come to my house, uh, we learned from that. We learned from that experience where this guy literally walked right in to our house. We locked the door now. Sad. When I was a kid, we didn't even lock the door when we went to sleep at night. It's a different world. So now we lock the door. So if you come to our door and you're one of those friendly people that like to walk into other people's houses, you're going to, it's going to be locked. Part of our responsibility as elders in the church is to protect the flock, to keep them from experiencing harm, to be able to identify thieves and robbers and to point them in the right direction. So how can we personally identify that which is false? We get it that the elders and the shepherds within our local church are there to help to protect us and equip us But is there anything else that we're to do personally? So John addresses this in his first epistle to the early church. You can turn there if you'd like. It's 1 John chapter 4. But we as God's people who possess the Holy Spirit of God are to test everything by the Word of God. This is why when we preach the Bible, we go through and we preach what's called expositorily. We try to make, a, make sense of the text. So we try to preach exegetical. X means out. That prefix X means out. We, we extract the meaning from the text, out of the text. There are so many that are eisegeting today Ice means in, and so this is the idea that we read into the text what we want it to say. And that's not what, why God gave us the Bible. He gave us the Bible, and he gave us preachers of God's Word to extract the meaning out of the text, not to read into the text. And this is what we have going on all over the world today, is people that are doing these little ditties and proof texting and getting a verse for this and a verse for that to help to say what they wanted to say. And that's not what we're to do as God's people. We're to exegete the text, grab out of the text the meaning, not reading into it. So we possess the Spirit of God, right? At the moment of our conversion, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We're gifted by the Spirit to be able to function within the body of Christ, There are so many ministries of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to sit down and in that class, what we believe, we'll go through the ministries of the Holy Spirit. We possess the Spirit of God. We're to test everything by the Word of God that's inspired by God. And the ultimate litmus test is what others say about Jesus. Okay? What others say about Jesus. So, because I like to go out to Roots Farmer's Market, I have engaged 
uh, with the Jehovah Witnesses on a number of occasions. Now they only have Hispanic-speaking Jehovah Witnesses. Maybe because of me. I don't know. I don't know Spanish, so I just walk by. Ultimately, it's what people say about Jesus, and they do not believe that Jesus is God. Therein lies the problem. They're spiritually blind. The ultimate litmus test is what others say about Jesus, who he is, where he's from, and why he came to earth. So what can we do personally? 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, test, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. The one who is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Test the spirits. Test what you hear from me by the word of God. Test what you hear from any teacher in our church by the word of God. Test what you hear from anyone by the word of God. We are ultimately individually responsible for what we believe and what we put into practice in our life. Test the spirits to see if they're from God. Scrutinize everything through God's holy word. Well, let me just close this morning by jumping ahead a little bit. So again, John chapter 10, and look at verse 27. And we'll look at this more in detail in a coming message. But look at verse 27 here of John chapter 10. And this is so comforting. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are safe and secure in the hands of God. Jesus is our shepherd, and we'll look at that in more detail next week. But we should leave here today celebrating that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to come to this sin-tainted world and to die in the place of all who would believe in him, to provide perfect, satisfactory redemption for our sin. He has purchased us out of the slave market of sin, and we are now the children of God. We are his sheep 
And he is our shepherd. Can't wait to next week to flesh that out a little bit more. If you need Christ this morning, please see us. We'd love to talk to you more about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you again for your love to us. Thank you for sending Christ, your Son, to come and to do what we could not do on our own, to provide perfect redemption for our sin. Thank you that Jesus propitiated our sin. He satisfied your righteous anger against our sin, something we could not do, and yet he has done it for us. All those who would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ the Good Shepherd, will be able to enter into the fold of the sheep and will be protected. He is our great Savior and protector. No one can snatch us out of His hand. What an amazing thought. We thank You and we praise You this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.